Welcome to FIA Speaks, a podcast at the centre of the futures, options and listed derivatives markets and the interesting people who work in them, run exchanges and regulate this industry. FIA's mission is to support open, transparent and competitive markets, protect and enhance the integrity of the financial system and promote high standards of professional conduct. Please note we have a lengthy disclaimer that I encourage you to listen to or read at FIA.org. But in short, this podcast is meant to be informative about this industry and should not be relied on for investment advice. And now, here's your host, FIA President and CEO, Walt Lucan. This episode is being recorded at FIA's annual International Derivatives Conference in London. In this episode, we sit down and talk with a member of the European Parliament, Dr. Kay Swinburne. And with the recent elections in Europe and the ongoing Brexit drama in the UK, we're really lucky to have you, especially as you're about to exit the European Parliament. Uh, so, Kay, welcome to FIA Speaks. Thank you for asking to speak to me. Yeah. Well, you have quite an impressive resume, and for those that aren't are familiar with it, um, you grew up in Wales. You have a PhD in medical research, an MBA. You have a, a, a successful professional career in investment banking and international health care. Um, but how did you get into politics? I mean, it seemed you were on your way to a professional, successful career in investment banking. And what tempted you into politics in the first place? So when my children were very young and I was traveling a lot back and forth between the U.S. as a, a hedge fund manager, decided that I, I wasn't seeing much of my kids. So thought I'd take a career break. Career break for me meant actually the first time I'd ever stopped doing that international travel with, with my job in finance. So having stopped, unknown to me, my friends and family had made a market in how long I'd stay out of, of the retirement, in the retirement mode. And it ends up I got to six weeks before I got really frustrated hearing about the town I was living in, medieval structure in the centre that all the tourists came to see. And it was announced that the town council was going to put a stainless steel elevator on the outside of this medieval wooden structure. So I got a little incensed and decided I'd go and find out about it. To be told you can only have a say if you have a vote and to have a vote you have to be a councillor. So this was a slippery slope. I was the mayor of the town the year later and then met David Cameron no more than a year after that. And so all in all, it's become a bit chaotic. As a member of the Conservative Party, David Cameron recognized your talents. And how did he bring you into his, his vision of the Conservative Party? So I was fortunate enough that when David Cameron first became leader of the Conservative Party, he decided to launch his uh, leadership with his first speech in a city called Hereford uh, on the Welsh borders. And he asked me whether I would actually give the introductory speech for him. So I went and gave the introductory speech. And then as a result of that, he decided that it was his mission to make sure that I became one of his candidates on his national list. Having asked me if I'd become a national candidate, I declined, saying I was in retirement to look after my children, and therefore this was not the time for me. He is exceedingly persistent. And a few weeks later, I had a phone call telling me that there was an interview for me to become a prospective candidate. Could I make it? So I went out of curiosity more than anything else, got put on his A-list, and within a year or so afterwards was actually uh, on the candidates list as a candidate for the European Parliament elections. 
2009 came around really quickly before I was then elected. So David Cameron is at the heart of all of this. Um, he was trying to get women in business out of uh, their careers to actually come and be representatives of his party in Westminster and elsewhere. So I'm always struck by the European Parliament too, because there is a strong need for technical expertise uh, as a parliamentarian, um, compared to I think what some other legislatures around the world where they're more generalists, um, you know, you serve on the econ committee naturally, uh, but there is even aspects of a regulatory role of being a member of parliament. Talk, talk a little bit about that and, and how you got on the econ committee and what you strive to be as sort of your expertise on that committee. So when I became a, an accidental politician, I decided when I was going to represent my country, my home country of Wales, that it was very important for me to be the representative. And so the biggest issues for Wales are agriculture. We've got more sheep than people. And we certainly had a big interest in economic development because we're a very uh, sort of underfunded area in terms of, of our economic performance. So I was hoping to get onto the Agricultural Committee when I got to Brussels but of course, 2009 was the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis. And my then leader of my delegation, of the Conservative delegation in Brussels, uh, took one look at my CV and called me to his office and said, indeed, I wasn't having any of my choices for committee. I couldn't go to the Agricultural Committee. I was needed on the Economic and Monetary Affairs Committee, given my background. So it was a little surprising to me that I ended up back in financial services, having made the shift out of it and thought I'd be doing agriculture and, and various issues that would look after my farmers in Wales. But to be fair, I agreed to do two and a half years on the committee, loved it so much that 10 years on, I'm still there. Kept going, yeah. Well, um, I was also struck um, by how little staff you have as a member of parliament too. Um, also requiring you to do a lot of the heavy lifting on expertise and technical background. Um, why is that? Is, is that just a, a legacy of the limited resources of a European Parliament? Or why, why do they give you such few staff members? So the entire EU, so that's the entire structure. So whether that's the Commission, whether it's the Parliament, or indeed the Council and the way it, it actually functions, all runs on 1% of GDP contribution by each country. So that's only 1% of, of the EU 28's GDP. It's not a big budget compared to any other of the national parliament's budgets that you would have. So it does mean that you have to run a lean machine, a very lean set of, of staff. And you have to have staff not just in Brussels, where the legislative work is done. You also need staff back in your constituency. So your budget has got to be split between those two roles. And indeed, in order to do your job properly, you need people who really understand your constituency matters back home. But you also need very smart people who can understand the way the legislation is uh, produced and the way it's amended and how you can make a difference. Because the one thing about European legislation is it's very interactive. So if you have technical knowledge, technical expertise, and take advice from as many sources as possible, you really can shape and amend the legislation from the draft proposal that the Commission produce. And some of the work we've done over the last 10 years, I'm very proud of the changes that we've made. So that we've taken something that was very difficult to see how it could work in practice across 
all countries to then amending it to making it work and getting the best policies out there so that people have got good law to actually work towards. And, and as you look back on the 10 years of your career, is there one or two things that you're most proud of? Is it the collective body of work that you've done? What are, what are you going to think about after you've left as your legacy? So it's, it's quite a difficult question because uh, you'll know from your experience of interacting with it, the European Union Econ Committee has been very busy over the last 10 years. And certainly in my first mandate, we did over 80 pieces of legislation that my office were involved in. And in the second one, we've just capped over 90. So it's been a phenomenal number of pieces of legislation. They're all very detailed. They don't, they're not principles-based, they're detailed. And they have to be in order to actually have them translate into each country and be put straight. Most of our work has been regulation. So they get put straight onto the statute book in each member state without any further interference by the parliamentarians locally. So it does mean that we have to get it right. So the collective body, because it all works after the financial crisis, a lot of it was actually sequential. So you actually followed through on market structures and reformed the way that the markets are working all with the end investor in mind. So everything that I have been involved in has always been from the perspective, does this benefit the end investor? Are we going to persuade European savers to become European investors? Can we free up some of that capital of the savings of European citizens to actually fund companies across Europe in the way that other markets around the world use their capital markets far more efficiently? I think we've achieved a little of that. It's a long way to go. I'm always amazed too is, you know, post-financial crisis, um, many countries around the world were just dealing with post-crisis reforms. The EU was dealing with post-crisis reforms at the same time as it was evolving its own financial system, as it was trying to develop capital markets and, and, and try to make sure that there's more capital flowing into the economy in Europe. That must have made it exponentially more difficult for you in your job. It made it more difficult, but I think it also opened up further possibilities. So we weren't stuck with existing systems. We could actually use the opportunity to produce what was the best supervisory architecture for 28 countries to work together in financial services to try and get that single market working better. So it was identified post-crisis that there was a need to have a single rule book for all 28 countries rather than 28 regulators competing with rule books. So that meant we needed a single supervisor who could write those rule books. We decided there was going to be one for the capital markets, one for insurance and one for banking. And therefore, setting up those structures was relatively straightforward because it was a clean sheet. We could devise the way we wanted these to be governed, the way we wanted them to be staffed and funded from a clean sheet of paper. Unlike other jurisdictions around the world, and in particular the US, where they were stuck with their structures, and indeed their inquiries into the financial crisis didn't allow the Congress to actually go and look into what might be a better structure for their regulators, where maybe some of the issues were that there were regulatory gaps between the different institutions. We could start with that clean sheet, so I think we had a, a huge advantage in doing that. They haven't worked perfectly, and they're evolving, and we've just done an ESA review. So those European supervisory authorities have just had their first review in terms of what governance structures they have, and we've just given them more power. 
They've, they've earned their stripes, as it were, and we've given them more power so that they do a lot more than some of the local regulators will now do going forwards. And they have a cleaner decision-making rather than having 28 regulators agree to something before it can happen. They now will work with much more of majority voting. And you've given some of those ESA bodies um, tools they need in order to govern, including exemptive authority, which will help them to figure out how to to tailor regulations to the risk in, in proportion, correct? That's one of the major features. So the, the European supervisory authorities take their power directly from the Commission, mm. the way that they're structured. So the Commission has the power to exempt. And if there's a request by the ESAs, uh, by the heads with a majority voting structure, with that request being backed, then of course the Commission ultimately gives the legal consent for that exemption to be made. But ultimately, the system works, and there are checks and balances at all stages. And indeed, the council and the parliament get consulted at all of these stages. So if there is an exemption going to be made, then both of those bodies as co-legislators would have to be approving that system too. And one of the big tenets of post-financial crisis reform is clearing. And um, Europe has done a lot of work to make sure that uh, its clearing houses are safe and, and, and well-capitalized. Uh, recently, uh, the Emir 2.2 uh, legislation, um, it's now in a consultation phase. I think there's several consultations out right now giving some clarity to that that piece of, of, of legislation. Um, wh where do you think that stands? I mean, are you supportive of where they ended up on that, that uh, legislation? So the original piece of work, the European Markets Infrastructure Regulation, came out of the G20 Pittsburgh Summit where obviously the global mandate to move as much OTC uh, product into a cleared environment was supported by the G20, and, and indeed we all tried to then implement it. That original piece of, of work on EMIR is one of the ones I think worked best. But we always knew that we weren't going to get it right the first time, and that the markets evolve, and therefore we needed a review period built in to the legislation. So... Just over three years afterwards, we started that review process where we knew we had to make some tweaks. Um, that was well underway when a certain major event happened in 2016, with the UK unexpectedly voting as a population in a referendum to leave the EU. That obviously disrupted that yeah, very conventional review that would have been simply tweaking things to make them work more efficiently and better when we'd had the experience of the legislation. Of course, given that London is sitting outside of the EU going forwards, given that decision in the referendum, it meant that many of my parliamentarians felt very strongly that a very large global financial centre that used to be in the heart of, of the EU would now be outside, and therefore they felt they needed to review the way in which they, as a European supervisor, supervised, in particular, London clearinghouses and London-based entities. So they were a little nervous that in the future they wanted to ensure that they had some oversight. They wanted to ensure that on a systemic risk basis that they had enough insight into these nodes of systemic risk in clearing that they could actually feel comfortable it wouldn't impact their monetary policy, especially within the Eurozone. So I have some sympathy for why it, it suddenly became a much more politicised piece of work. And indeed, it was split into two. 
So the normal review continued on the tweaking of all of the, the basics of, of EMEA, and we've now changed it so that small banks now are exempt much in the same way as they are in the US and other jurisdictions around the world. But the really political piece ended up being known as EMEA 2.2, which was this whole idea that the European supervisors needed to have direct supervision of some kind over systemically important third country CCPs. And so, of course, given there was already equivalence decisions in place with at least two systemically important CCPs based in the US, I think it caused a little bit of political upset around the globe when people realized that all of the hard work getting that equivalence decision over four years, I might add, it was a long time coming, suddenly had almost seemed as if it was done for nothing. And so we had to start all over again. Where the original proposal came out, I thought it was incorrect. I thought there were a huge number of areas where they were overreaching. And in particular, it was unnecessary interference. Um, for me, there was a problem that they have effectively ditched deference. And I'm a huge supporter of deference. Given the increased cooperation of global regulators post-financial crisis, the idea of not allowing deference to happen for me is a mistake. But we've ended up with a slightly watered-down version where I hope there's enough room within the primary legislation for it to be interpreted such that good cooperation between regions means that there still will be that level of deference within the system. And of course, the US already has a degree of oversight into entities like the LCH in London already. And so there is precedence for this. And I think provided the regulators continue to work very, very closely together, I think we'll end up finding the legislation as it's currently drafted is flexible enough to allow that enhanced cooperation going forwards. Now, you mentioned Brexit and, and obviously the, the prime minister is stepping down at the end of the week. Um, can you give us, before you leave the government, give us any sort of thoughts on um, what the long-term outcome might be here or if, if you have any insights there? So the real issues here are that we've had two and a half years, obviously, where we've been negotiating with the other side and the other side being the other 27 countries. Um, as is quite normal in Brussels, uh, consensus politics is what emerges. And of course, we're used to having not just 28 countries coming to an agreement, but 751 parliamentarians also having to come to an agreement from those 28 countries, but from very disparate political parties. So compromise and the, the way we do policy is by consensus is normal in Brussels. It's not normal in Westminster. And so we do hold a very different system there with the executive making decisions and then having Parliament endorse that decision. So the government in good faith negotiated with the EU and back in November of last year had come to this withdrawal agreement that had been drafted and had been redrafted and you know, gone through many, many iterations before they'd agreed to the final text. And it was supposed to be ratified, of course, immediately by Westminster and then by the European parliamentarians. Um, European parliamentarians have not had that chance to ratify it yet because Westminster never ratified it. Um, we are still at the stage where the only deal on the table at this point is what is drafted in the withdrawal agreement. But of course, that withdrawal agreement is only a roadmap. 
It's the roadmap for exiting and giving the UK enough time during that exit period to negotiate a new relationship. And so we're not even at the beginning of the new negotiations on what the future relationship will look like and what that free trade agreement going forwards might end up looking like, particularly for areas in the service sector and financial services being one of those key for the United Kingdom. But I am still very optimistic that it can be done. Um, there is always a pragmatic view in Brussels that if the language needs to be clarified, the language needs to be in some way modified in order to get this through. Most of the member states are very pragmatic and will allow that to happen. But we need, of course, very clear direction. And what we're now seeing is that our Prime Minister has failed to get her version of this through three times. And so now she has to come back um, and give over the, the baton to someone else. Um, I didn't expect such a crowded field with 13 names being put forwards in that first instance. It's a huge number of people. And my colleagues in the Westminster Conservative Parliament will now decide which of those two will go through to a ballot of the party members in the country. So I'm only one of those party members in the country. So I only get my say, as everybody else will, um, when it comes to that shortlist of two. But I genuinely hope that by the time the hustings are over in the next few weeks, we will have a clear idea of where the two prospective candidates want to go, how they're going to take us out, and what that future relationship is going to look like. Because until we get clarity on exiting the EU, everything else will pale into comparison. So all the big issues that the country needs people you know, as a, an independent country to look at and deal with need an awful lot of government time. So we need to be able to put this behind us, allow the technocrats to get on and negotiate the next stage of the free trade deal and allow the politicians in Westminster to get on to actually build that new global Britain that everybody promised the country back in the referendum. And how does it, what is the process involved with getting from 13 candidates down to two? Is, is there a... Is this something that happens quite often? What, how do you go from that number down to the, the final two? I don't think we've ever got this many candidates. Yeah. Uh, I think it would be normal to say it's more likely five or six would be yeah. the norm. And over a course of two days of voting, they would eliminate um, in successive rounds of voting between five, you know, the five and six. This time they published last night the details of how they're going to do it. So each candidate has to have a minimum number of members of parliament backing them. So that will potentially eliminate some as people start moving their allegiances amongst candidates. They are politicians after all. They'll be playing various political games over the next, next couple of weeks. And so we may not have 13 by the time they get to that selection process. But when the hustings start, people will also realize that some of those candidates maybe can't deliver what they're promising. And therefore, they will actually be persuaded not to stand in that, that elimination rounds. But the elimination rounds will be a little more brutal than normal. If we do end up with that big list, there will be potential for more than one candidate to actually go at any one time if they, have, uh, they haven't they met a minimum threshold that has been set yesterday by the 1922 committee. It's going to be a complicated few days. Yeah, sounds like it. Um, I wouldn't pay too much attention to it until the outcome comes because ultimately those two candidates are what matters. Those two candidates, as they've been selected, will then go to the wider membership 
And that's some 160,000 people will then get to have a vote on, on which of those two becomes the, the next prime minister. And do you have a candidate at this point? I don't. Yeah. And, and until people are very clear on what method they are going to choose in order to exit the EU, uh, I won't be casting any public vote in support of anyone. And I want to see where they're going to go, not just how they get us out, but what that future relationship as an aspiration to them should be. Because I want my next prime minister to have a clear view on the future direction, not just on how to come out, but where we need to be going forwards. The EU still collectively is our biggest trading bloc, and therefore we will have to have a positive relationship with them. 80% of our services are exported to them. We need to have access to those customers in order to actually have a positive growth story going forwards. But I'm fairly confident that there are other things we can do around this. I think financial services in particular, there is, as I've spoken about the global cooperation amongst regulators, I think the UK will now try and spearhead a much closer working relationship with those big financial centres around the world to try and coordinate some of the regulatory action to make sure there's no arbitrage opportunities and that if there are changes needed in the way that the markets work globally, because the capital markets are global, that they will actually work together with their external partners, which I hope means that the EU will not want to be out of sync with the rest of the world. And that leadership that the UK is going to have to show is something my new prime minister is going to have to actually buy into straight away. Financial services and all professional services are so important to our GDP that they have to have a vision for me to be able to support them. In, in a, two weeks ago, the EU had its elections as well. And I think the outcome is... Uh, more factions uh, within the parliament itself. It seems to be a bit more par polarized than before. Uh, what does this mean from, uh, you know, what kind of, of legislative initiatives they'll be putting forward? And just long-term, what does the new makeup of the parliament uh, mean for those on the outside looking in? So there are 751 members, and we've always had a diverse set of, of, of members from communists on the one side, where their party really are called the Communist Party, to people who are very right-wing and wouldn't object to being called fascists. So there is a real broad spectrum already in the European Parliament, and always has been. But they tended to be very small, and they were minority groups. And the very large centre ground would be taken up by the two largest political groups, one that would describe themselves as the centre-right, the EPP, and one that would describe themselves as centre-left, the, the SPD, so you've got that socialist group on the left. Those two groups historically have always had a majority between the two of them. So every decision the parliament is taken by a majority vote. So those two large political groups as a grand coalition could get legislation through the parliament just by those two political families actually voting together on bloc. This time round, for the first time in the history of the European Parliament since it's been uh, directly elected, they do not, as two large political groups, have that inbuilt majority. So the centre ground is now going to have to be made up of at least two, three, four or five political groups working together. And so it's going to be a much more difficult process 
to get consensus in the next term because those parliamentarians will always want something for lending their support for something that doesn't completely fit with their principles or their values. And they will all want to shape things a little more. And those smaller groups, groups like the Greens, who did very well this time around, groups like the Liberal group, who, if they do join with Macron's uh, group, La Marche, you'll end up with a very different flavour where the Liberals and the Greens will actually potentially have a lot more influence over those two large groups, the Conservatives and the the, the socialists going forwards. So I think decision-making will slow down. I think there'll be less uh, easy uh, pickings within the legislative process. And I think it will be a little more fractious. Mm. But all in all, uh, the biggest concern for me is the changeover. Uh, in the history of the parliament, there has never been such a large changeover of individuals. On my own committee on econ, it's at least two-thirds. Potentially three-quarters of those members will be new. Um, which is a huge loss of institutional memory on legislative files, which, as you say, have been very technical. And then on the parliament as a whole, the latest figures we have, and they're still moving around a little, that they're out of the 751 members, only 280 of them were there in the last mandate. So that, across the parliament, is a phenomenal change in terms of representation. So I think it's all to play for. This is going to be a big unknown space and it's going to take the new commission coming in in October to really give us a flavour of where their priorities are and whether the parliament as elected agree to those priorities. So I think we're going to have a very quiet year in terms of output, but a very busy year in the parliament and in the commission as they try and set those new priorities, which I think will be very different from previous mandates. Does it present a, an opportunity for groups like the FIA to, to help to educate them about the importance of markets and derivatives? Is it going to be an uphill battle for us uh, with all that new turnover or all those new members and that amount of turnover? I think, as, as is always the case, there are opportunities and there are going to be challenges to this. The, the real opportunity is that the new teams, particularly the new assistants and advisors, will be very happy to actually have the assistance in learning about capital markets. It's still a major focus in terms of, of the EU27. The CMU project has been and will continue to be a priority. So that will, will need to be done, and I think they'll be very open to that learning experience, provided it's done in the right way right. and not done in too biased at, at yeah, if, if you're coming in with a pure industry perspective rather than the investor's perspective, I suspect you'll have short shrift. Mm -hmm. But if you do it in a, a much more comprehensive way and, and in a very open way, then I think you'll have great reception. Obviously, the challenge is that those new members are really going to have to get up to speed on dossiers very quickly. The Econ Committee doesn't just deal with primary legislation because the rules are made by the European Supervisory Authorities Every one of those rules that has a regulatory technical standard or has guidelines attached to it, they come before that committee in order to have them approved. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done on existing legislation. So it's never so interesting for new members to go back and learn existing legislation. They always like the new and the shining and the bright that they can make major changes to. Whereas existing legislation, it's a little more mundane, but we're going to have to persuade people that it's in their interests to go back and learn about 
the files, learn about the detail, and therefore be able to give a genuine contribution to those regulatory technical standards as they're produced by the European supervisory authorities. And one of the topics that you mentioned yesterday is, is something likely to come out of the new parliament is uh, the ESG initiatives and sus sustained uh, sustainable finance uh, directives. And can you talk a little bit about that? There seems to be a growing um, concern and, 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 and need for advancing that type of legislation. And give us your thoughts on how that might proceed with the new parliament. So at the very end of this mandate, the Commission decided that it would very rapidly put through a package of legislation in order to try and advance that ESG agenda uh, much more rapidly than it would if it had to wait for the next Commission to go through the formal processes. That means that we do have legislation already drafted in terms of taxonomy for ESG. Um, it's fairly prescriptive. As it stands, it was done by two committees, not just the Econ Committee that understands financial services and investments. It was also drafted in agreement with the Environment Committee. So those people who genuinely have um, the concerns of climate change at the top of their agenda. So the bias is maybe in a slightly different place to where I would have placed it. Um, but actually, it's come out as a compromise piece that I think the industry can work with. The industry now need to assist the uh, people who will have to put that taxonomy in place. And therefore, I think a lot of data is required, a lot of insight from particularly the buy side who make ESG decisions on a daily basis already. I think they need to share the criterion that they use, what measures work, what measures don't, so that people actually benefit from that existing wisdom rather than starting from scratch and maybe starting with none of the lessons learned. So I would urge anyone who has expertise in this area, and many of the big financial firms do, that they actually assist not just the Commission, but the European supervisory authorities as they try and put this new taxonomy into place and make sure that through all future European legislation, the intent will be to make sure that ESG considerations are given to every piece of legislation, no matter how unrelated it might seem on the surface, they will have to have made some ESG consideration. One topic I wanted to, to bring up as we come to a close here, um, you know, you've been a big supporter of mentoring programs over your time and your career, uh, wanting to pass on knowledge and provide younger generations with the ability to, to lead. Um, and also as part of that, making sure there's a diverse um, set of young people coming into whether it's finance, government, whatever it might be. Uh, yesterday, we were talking about uh, gender diversity, and I was struck by your comment that at one point in your career, you were opposed to quotas and now would be supportive of that. Talk us through sort of the logic of that. I, I, I found it fascinating, and I was very interested in, in how you came to that conclusion. So I've always believed in, in true meritocracy and always believed that if you were really good at what you do, you would always get what you deserved coming to you. And that in my career was always something I felt was, was, was the case. 
However, I have realized as I've got older, in my 20s and 30s, I was optimistic it was going to get to parity, men and women in all of the difficult sectors. Um, I've seen it in science. We've seen in certainly life sciences, which is my background originally. We now see more female graduates than male graduates. We see it in medicine. We see it in all sorts of areas of life sciences. But it doesn't seem to be translating at anywhere near that pace into the likes of financial services and other professional services. And I just feel that we've become almost complacent and it's become a tick box exercise rather than fundamentally looking at why it's still the case. That now that I've, I've reached my 50th uh, set of years that I'm still nowhere near seeing parity. And indeed, some of the figures, if you look at the overall board compositions, we see them when you include the executive, not just the non-executive, we are actually going backwards in many instances. That concerns me. I mean, I didn't think a 30% target was actually a difficult target. I thought that was a low-hanging fruit that people could get to. Yes, on non-execs, we've reached it. On overall boards, we certainly haven't reached it. So for me now, it's a case of if you can't do it by the carrot, then maybe you do need the stick. Mm. And therefore, in countries who have put a compulsory quota in place, some of the Scandinavian countries, in France, um, in Norway, you're seeing a very different picture emerge, where they have not just got to the 40% mandatory target, many of them are now nudging the parity. And that's where we should be. I mean, as somebody pointed out to me, one of my colleagues that I disagree with on the political spectrum, one of my green colleagues, um, he turned to me and said, Kay, you're not a minority. You make up half of the population. You shouldn't have to ask for this all of the time. So I'm a firm believer that, you know, you need to use the tools you have at your disposal if things aren't happening and they're not happening fast enough. So I think now uh, some idea of, of quotas would be quite helpful. But also we need to change practice. And I do spend a lot of time, not just with my staff and my extended teams and my political group, mentoring and assisting all of those, those individuals to be the best that they can. I also go and speak to lots of, of groups of, of young financial services people around London and indeed across the continent, where I go and talk to them about the things I have come across in my life which have been difficult and what tools you have. Certainly looking back as you're older, what could you have done differently? How would you have gone through that? And then try and give them some examples of, of where, you know, I didn't get it right the first time, but if knowing what I know now, I'd gone back, I would do it this way. And I've been encouraging colleagues to do that because people learn in that way and, and they relate to it. Because everybody have bumps in their careers, male, females, whatever. You always have times when things are not working out. But you need a skill set that allows you to get through those periods. And, you know, turning 50 means I've got a fair number of years under my belt and a fair number of experiences, which hopefully sharing those helps. And I've just been given a huge opportunity in the last year. I have, was given the opportunity to compete to be a non-executive mentee on an S&P 500 board. And for me, that was a huge opportunity to go and sit and take my existing skill set and sit in an environment learning from everybody else with these decades of experience around me. And I have found that so fulfilling. Yes, I now believe I genuinely can do the job. I probably thought I could before. Now I know I can do it. And I know I can intervene at the appropriate times and I can have something to add to that governance structure that a non-exec brings to a large company. 
But I would love that type of project to be extended to every financial services firm. If every board in the financial services arena gave that opportunity to a woman for a year's sitting on their board, fully participating in a non-voting capacity, we would have such a big pool of people to choose from that nobody could ever say again that there are no women with a relevant experience because you'll have been ticking that box. Well, you're a tremendous role model for all of us um, and the fact that you're willing to, to sit down and mentor people and pass on that knowledge and be a role model is enormously helpful um, for the next generation. Um, I know you're only days away from ending your public career and we thank you for serving the public. It's not, there's a lot of sacrifice involved with serving the public. But I'm just curious what, what you're gonna do when you actually come home to, to wherever home is going to be for you, I'm not sure. But uh, you know, what is on your, your bucket list of things that you wanna do when you become a private citizen again? There are quite a few things. My, my kids have insisted the first thing I do is actually put the suitcases in the loft yeah. so that my nomadic life is over and I don't actually spend every Sunday night packing a suitcase. So I think that that's one of the practical things that will happen and, and psychologically be nice to actually have a base rather than traveling every week or the number of hours that you do. But the other side of that is I'm looking forward to actually having a brand new challenge. It's, it's been a decade in politics. It's been a very rewarding personal journey for me. But actually, it's time to have a new challenge. And I get bored, so I'm ready for that new challenge. Don't know exactly what it's going to be yet, but I'm hoping it's going to be something that allows me to leverage all of that knowledge that I've gained in this very privileged position of representing my country in the European Union and actually helping people see that there are ways of finding solutions to even the most difficult problems. Well, FI wants to thank you for all of the support you've given our industry over the years, and not because you're supporting us, but because you're supporting safe markets, you're supporting customer protection, the things that good public servants do. Um, but it's all been to the benefit of our markets, and we thank you for, for all of that. Um, so, Kay, thank you for joining us on FA Speaks today. We appreciate your support of FI and our events. And thanks to our listening audience. And as always, we welcome your feedback, issues, and ideas at FIAspeaks at FIA.org. FIA Speaks is brought to you by the staff of the FIA. Steve Adamski is our executive producer. Cameron Lane is our technical producer, with additional technical support from Craig Richardson. We welcome your feedback on these podcasts at FIAspeaks at FIA.org. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast's content. Reliance on the podcast contents is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on or inability to use this podcast or its contents. 
any commercial use, resale or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2019 FIA. All rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.